I'm so thankful. Just uh, I know I, I'm sure I say this more than I remember saying it, but the way that we are able to prepare our hearts for the Word by worshiping together, hearing Scripture read together, uh, it is just such a blessing for me every week to not jump in cold, but to be warmed and to have our affections for Christ and His Word raised through corporate worship together. The short way of saying that is, I like to hear you sing, <laughs> and it's an encouragement, so it's, it's good to be together. This Sunday, we're continuing through the book of Ephesians. Last Sunday, we started this section of husbands and wives in chapter 5, and that's where we are again today. We'll be here for a couple more weeks, and I want to ask a question as we start regarding, I mean, the whole of the scriptures and how we approach them, but also for this section specifically, why... Why do you think there are specific instructions in the Bible? Why isn't everything in here just kind of a general principle? Why the narrow, specific instructions? I mean, it would not be wrong for Paul to say, husbands and wives ought to live together in a way that honors God. All of us would probably agree. Great. But what happens if there's nothing more than that? No specifics. I think we'd miss a lot. We, we kind of have this way of being able to wiggle out of general instruction and say, well, it doesn't really apply to me. I think that's more for somebody else. There's no way to know. <laughs> we can't do that here. Paul gives very specific instruction, just as he's been doing since the beginning of chapter 4, about Christian living, and now he gets into this specifics with husbands and wives. The reason is, for the specific instruction, is God knows us. <laughs> he knows our tendencies. He knows that we are sinful people. So the instruction for a wife to submit herself to her husband is there because in our flesh that is not the natural tendency. And the reason the instruction for husbands to love their wives is because in our sin, that is not our natural tendency. We are selfish, all of us. And if it were up to us, we would just do whatever we want. But the Word of God will not let us do that. He calls us to something better. He calls us to something specific. Last week, we started looking at what submission is. And we started in verse 21 by seeing this mutual submission that Paul calls all in the church to. Submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then we just started looking at what it means for a wife to submit to her husband. And I want to continue that today, but we have to also look at this aspect of headship. Because of where Paul goes in our text. So we want to see both of those things, how they work together, and what the scripture has for us. So... If you haven't done this, let's open our Bibles. Ephesians chapter 5. And I'm going to read this section again. One of the reasons, we're going to be in this section for a few weeks, but I want to read the whole thing every time because I want this to become familiar to you. I want you to be able to remember, oh yeah, that was in, that was in Ephesians or that was in chapter 5 or whatever. I want you to know this. That's why I read the whole thing even though we're not going to look at the whole thing. So follow along. Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to start in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray together. Father, we come again, just as we have every week, to your word, and we ask for your help. And I thank you that you are unlike me. When I get asked the same thing repeatedly, I tend to get annoyed. But with you, when we come daily, sometimes hourly, weekly, and we ask for your help, it is a delight for you to prove yourself and your faithfulness. And so we come thankful that you are not a God of our own making. You are not a God who is unpredictable and unstable, but you are constant you are true, and you are faithful. So as we come this morning and ask for your help, I do so in the full confidence that you will hear and answer this prayer. So Spirit of God, come and work this text into our heart. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. So last week we said that Biblical submission is, and this is how we defined it, biblical submission is a wife willingly placing herself under the care, protection, provision, wisdom, and leadership of her husband. And we saw that she is to look to Christ as the example, the qualifier for this, not only her husband. Right? Christ is the standard of this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to Christ. And we talked about that a little bit more last week. So, as the wife brings herself under the care and the protection and the authority of Christ, so she also ought to bring herself under the care and the authority and the perfect, uh, perfection. Ooh, better be careful. Protection of her husband. The next thing now that we need to deal with in the text is what it means for the husband to be the head of the wife. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now there is no room for a discussion about, well, is he or isn't he? It says very clearly, the husband is the head of the wife. What we need to talk about is what does that mean? No wiggle room here, but we need some definition. Paul tells us that male 
headship in the home, the husband's leadership, is to be modeled after Jesus' headship in the church, right? As Christ is the head of the church. That means this is similar to this. So what we need to do now before we start any kind of definition about what this means is we need to understand what does it mean for Jesus to be the head of the church. If he's the model, if he's the example, then we need to know what that means so that we can shape our definition off of Christ, not off of our opinion or history or whatever. And we've already seen this in the book of Ephesians. Several places the language is used about Jesus being the head of the church, how he cares for the church, how he provides for what the church needs. So we have some good foundation here, and I would just briefly remind us of a couple of the things that we've seen so far. In chapter 1, Paul is telling these churches in Ephesus that Jesus Christ has been placed in the position of authority in the church. And he uses this word, he has been placed as the head of the church. This is Ephesians 1, 22. And God put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So here, the idea of headship is that Jesus has been placed, has been put in the position of the head of the church, and the implication is that, therefore, everything under him is subject to him. He's the head, he's the top, everything else is coming underneath. Ephesians chapter 4, this is verse 15, Paul is still using this head and body language to describe how the church is now strengthened and equipped by Jesus. Ephesians 4, 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together with every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here, Jesus being the head means that he provides for the church what it needs to be strengthened and equipped and prepared. So we see see things flowing from the head down to the body. Make sense? We we covered this in pretty good detail. If you want, you can go back and see more upon that. Now one more text. I'm going to go outside of Ephesians. Colossians chapter 1. Perhaps one of the best passages on Christology, on the doctrine of Christ and what it means for him to be the Son of God. Colossians 1 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent means he comes first. He has priority. He is the one where everything else comes from. Okay? So, according to these texts, What could we say it means for Christ to be the head of the church? Let's just summarize this. He fills the church by providing what it needs. He equips the church by giving it everything that it needs to grow and flourish. He ensures that it is working properly by by building it up. And he is preeminent, which means he holds both the title and the actual position of authority in the church. We do not, as a church, view Jesus Christ as some 
paper boss where just, well, it's just, yeah, it's kind of the position, but no, he has actual, literal authority in the church, in this church. Let's add a couple more things because these are all specifically in relation to Jesus as head. That's why I chose those passages. But what are some other ways that we should add to our definition, ways that Jesus cares for the church? I want to just suggest a few. Romans 8.34, he prays for us. He intercedes for us. Hebrews 4.15, he sympathizes with our weakness. John 5.21, he gives us life. John 10, 1 through 18, he protects us as our shepherd. All of these things must be part of our definition of biblical headship because we see them in Christ. And Christ is the standard for what we're talking about. So here's my definition, okay? Let's, let's put a definition on it. Biblical headship <clears throat> is the God-given, sacrificial leadership that prioritizes the good of those under its care. Biblical headship is the God-given, sacrificial leadership that prioritizes the good of those under its care. A man who strives to be like Christ, a man who carefully exercises the authority that God has given him, will be a man who is a joy to submit to because he is modeling his life after Christ. Every problem in the marriage relationship would find its resolution if both husband and wife were totally committed to being like Christ. Do you believe that? I tell people in premarital counseling, here's the best marriage advice I can give you. Wholeheartedly live the Christian life. If you are bent on being like Christ, if you are committed to getting away with selfishness and focusing on the good of others and just trying to imitate Christ in your life, your marriage would be what it was designed to be. The problem is that sin ruins everything. I mean everything. You can have the best intentions, you can have everything planned out, and sin wrecks it. But sin is not a reason to not obey. It just makes it a little harder sometimes, and I, I understand that. The Bible is very practical, and I'm, I'm really thankful what we need is not just to make up our own standard. What we need is to be taught the truth. We need to see it from the word of God and then pray that the Holy Spirit would work that truth into our heart. Because if all we do is see the instruction in the Bible and we read and go, okay, well, that's what it says, but we don't ask and, and plead for the Holy Spirit to work this in, it's just going to be words on a page. So don't disconnect those two as we're going through. So let's read these just a couple verses again. We're going to ask some questions that arise out of this. So Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should also submit in everything to their husbands. So having defined what submission and headship look like, Let's ask a few questions. In verse 24, look with me. 
Paul says that wives are supposed to submit in everything to their husbands. Now, for most of us, when we read things that have kind of absolute language, like everything, all the time, never, that kind of stuff, we go, hmm, I think I have some objections to that. <laughs> right? And that's what happens. We, we read this and we ask questions like, what if he's being a jerk? That never happens, though, right? So we don't have to worry about that one. What if he wants me to do something that is unwise or unhelpful? Do you still have to submit? I mean, it says submit in everything. We need to find out what's going on here. I would remind us, and I hope you know this, that the Bible, the Word of God, is never going to call you to do two contradictory things at the same time. Here's what I mean. If the Bible calls you to submission, if you are obediently following that, that is not going to lead you into sin because the Bible does not lead you to sin. Make sense? So it's not going to tell you, you need to do this and you need to do this and they're going to end up going, well, you, you, can't, you can't do both. So we need to understand that when we come to this topic. Yes, the wife should submit in everything to her husband. Also, the husband should never ask the wife to submit to him in areas that would lead to sin. There's responsibility on both sides of this. Sin has ruined everything. So, if submitting to your husband means that you are violating the word of God and sinning, then I would say no. Because the word of God has to be our absolute. It has to be our standard. Hang with me here. <laughs> I know it sounds like I'm saying weird things. But let's, get, let's get through it all. A husband who calls his wife to sin and uses this text as a justification will bear the full weight of that. That is not what this text is for. This is not permission, husbands, for you to get your way all the time. This is not permission for you to run railroad over your wife. Like I said, if both husband and wife are fully committed to honoring Christ first, this will come after. So, if submitting your husband leads to violating the word of God, then that is not submission. Really, I think what this text has to do with is authority. Ooh, the icky A word. <laughs> Nobody likes this, right? I know. You know why we don't like it? Because we're sinful. We do not want to be told what to do. We just want to do whatever we want to do. So when anyone or anything comes in and says, you can't do that, all you want to do is that thing. It's like telling your kids, don't push the button. All they want to do, I want to. I want to push the button. Look at it, it's fun. It's a button. It's meant to be pushed. That's, that's our nature. That's what we do. We, we bristle against authority and anybody telling us what to do. And the Bible comes in and says, I have a better way. God has a better way. So I want to tell you, in regard to the question of, do I have to, is this total, is this absolute? Here's what I'd say, and I shamelessly stole this from R.C. Sproul. He says this, we are not obligated to submit to authority. When that authority commands us to engage in something forbidden by God, or forbids us from engaging in something commanded by God. Catch that? Let me say it again. 
We are not obligated to submit to authority when that authority commands us to engage in something clearly forbidden by God or forbids us from engaging in something commanded by God. Let me put it in a more practical sense. If a husband forbids his wife from going to church, he says, you don't need that. You're going to stay home. I don't want you going to church. Should she submit to him and stay home? The Bible commands us to meet together, to fellowship, to worship, to sing, to hear the word. What if the husband says, you know what? We're a little short on money this week. I want you to just, just take a couple hundred bucks from work. You know how, it, they'll never know. You never know. Should the wife submit to her husband in that case? No. Why? Because in submitting to her husband, she would be directly violating the word of God, which is sin. You see what I'm saying? And what I'm not trying to do here, like you notice in these examples, we need to make the word of God our authority. You cannot say, well, I'm going to decide when to submit and when not to submit based on mm, circumstances. If I find myself in the right circumstance and everything aligns, I'll do this. If not, I'm out. You can't do that. The Bible has to be the standard. It has to be. Because, like the fifth time I've said this, we are all sinful. And we just bring this, this nastiness with us whenever we try to interpret things. Now, I'm not trying to find a bunch of exceptions to the rule. Okay? Don't, don't hear me say this and assume that, okay, the Bible says this, but there's a whole bunch of exceptions. Okay, what I am trying to do is to remind you, don't unplug your brain when you read the Bible. Think about the practical ramifications of obedience to this book. So we're not trying to find any way out from under this we can get. What we are trying to say is we need to read this with the help of the Holy Spirit, with our mind fully engaged and not contradicting other parts of the Bible. Does that make sense? That, that's what I'm driving at here. I'm not trying to explain this away. Okay? Obedience to the Word of God will not lead you to sin. Obedience to the Word of God will not lead you down a path of sin. If someone says, you need to do this, and this is sin, don't do it. Don't do it. But we need to be really careful really careful because <laughs> we are corrupted. Our, our default position as human beings who have been plunged into sin because of the fall, our default is to defy authority. It, it's, we, do, we just don't like it. I, I just said this a moment ago. It's something we do not naturally do. But it's something that we are called to do and something that we need God's help in doing. You know, another angle of this, when we're talking about, well, is, is submission absolute? Like, here's a question that comes up. What if he's not a Christian? And, and just the whole, the whole worldview is different. I mean, this, this is really common. People get married. They've been married for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. The wife gets saved or, or the husband gets saved, whichever. How, how does that play into some of these circumstances where, like, do I still have to Submit to someone if he's not, he doesn't even have the same values as I do when it comes to morality and practice and spirituality. And all. What, what do you do? Peter has the answer. Turn in your Bibles just a little bit to the right. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. I want you to read this with me. 
1 Peter, he is giving a very similar instruction to husbands and wives, a little bit more concise. And he says this, 1 Peter chapter 3, look at verse 1. Likewise, wives, be, submiss- be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Peter flatly denies the idea that you only have to submit if your husband is a Christian or if he does what you want him to do. That is denied here. In fact, he goes beyond that to say that an unbelieving husband can actually be converted to Christ by the wife practicing this kind of submission. Which begs the question, what kind of submission is he talking about? Imagine this situation. You have, a, you have a Christian wife and a non-Christian husband. What kind of submission will win him over? What kind of posture will persuade him that his wife's faith is genuine and true and, and he, wants to, he wants to know what that is? What will that look like? Peter answers it. He goes on. So in verse 1, he says that some of them may be one when they see the conduct of their wives. Verse 2, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. He goes on, don't let your adorning, your, your beauty, be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. The kind of submission that honors God and honors the position that he has placed both the husband and the wife in, the submission that will convert the unbeliever, Peter says, is the kind of humble, gentle submission to the word of God and to the man that has been placed in that position by God, whether he recognizes it or not. No husband, (laughs) no unbelieving husband is going to be converted to Christ when they see the obnoxious, stubborn, defiant, feet-dragging, kind of unwilling submission, like, oh, I guess I just have to do this because the Bible told me that's not going to win anybody to Christ. That's not going to cause anybody to say, wow, I want to know the God that commands that kind of behavior. Really. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Those two words are important. Now at this point, (laughs) somebody is going to say, that's not my personality at all. Ask anyone who knows me, I am not quiet and gentle, and that's just, sorry, that's just not the way I am. What do we say to that? What do you say to that? Because that that comes up. I've had those conversations. And here's what I would say. Okay, that's, that's not the way you are. I get it. Is that the way you ought to be? I mean, which one of us would say, you know what, I think we've totally arrived. I don't have anything else to work with. I'm perfect the way I am. Who would say that? 
Don't answer that. I don't want to know. My point is that we all have to grow in these things. There is room for all of us to develop, to look at the Word of God and what it's calling us to and raise to that standard, to strive for that standard. So that's not the way you are? Great. I'm not the way I should be either, but that doesn't stop me from trying to get there and to do what the Bible is calling us to do. Does a person's personality nullify the instruction of Scripture? I mean, there's things in the Bible that I don't like. I know, I say I love the Bible, and I do, but you have to agree, when you read some of those things about conduct or, or prayer or whatever, it's like, man, I just kind of wish that wasn't in there. Is that a reason to ignore it, just because you don't like it? Or because it doesn't align with the way that you think right now? No, no, no. The Word of God is perfect, reviving the soul. This is part of what it means for us to be conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 8 tells us that's why God called you and saved you, justified you, so that you would be conformed to the image of his Son. So whether this is your natural inclination or not, it's what God is calling us to. So back to our original question. Submission in marriage is not blind, absolute submission, but must be measured against the standard of the Word of God. And I think I can say that and not be undermining what the Scripture says. I hope you understand that. It is not my goal here. I want to be faithful to what the Word says. But like I said, we can't unplug our brain. We need to think about, okay, it's, it's not always as simple as just, that's what the text says. We need to think about how to apply this to our life. So wives, I'm sorry if you feel picked on a little bit today. We're going to talk about husbands in the weeks to come. But for the rest of our time, I want to address another question that comes out of this subject, and then we'll, we'll close with a, with a summary here. Sometimes when discussing the roles of husbands and wives and what the Bible says about this, the question gets asked, okay, we, we see what God has called the husband to, we see what God has called the wife to, what, what happens when the wife is just naturally better at stuff? What happens when she outpaces her husband? Is this still a requirement? It just doesn't make sense. You ever, you ever have those kinds of questions or conversations or, or maybe even thoughts? Now, I know we haven't totally defined what the role of the husband is. We're going to get into that in the next couple of weeks. But let's ask this in a more practical way. What if the wife has a higher degree of education? She can make way more money than the husband can. Should she work and the husband stay home? I'm just telling you things that I run across talking to people, okay? What if she has a way better grasp of theology? She's been a Christian longer. She understands the Bible better. She can explain things better. Should she take over the spiritual leadership of their home? Another way to ask this would be to say, is the submission of a wife to her husband dependent upon qualification? Is leadership in marriage established by looking at the most qualified candidate? No, it's established by God. God is the one who says how this should work. Trying to determine who takes the lead in a biblical marriage is not the same as choosing a captain for a game. 
It's not about who is better qualified or has the most experience. And it's also not random. You ever play baseball when you were younger and to decide who it is, you put your hand on the bat, the next person, next person, next person. That's not what this is. This is not some kind of toss of the dice to see, well, who's going to take this spot? God has both designed and decreed Really important words. He has both designed and decreed that the man, the husband, be in the place of leadership in the home. This is not up to chance or always qualification. And if there are areas in the marriage where the wife is far superior to him, and there will be, (laughs) there will be areas where the wife is just way better, way more qualified, What is the obligation of a godly wife in that moment? She is to use those abilities, which God has given to her, by the way. Those aren't innate. Those are given, just like everything we have. She is to use those abilities which God has given her to supplement and promote her husband's leadership in the home. Wives, as you come to know your husband's, and you discover the areas where he is just at a deficit. Your responsibility is to recognize those things and yet honor him and honor the position that God has put him in as your husband. Strengthen him and encourage him and offer what you have and what you know in an attempt to strengthen him. Four ways that you can do this. First, pray for him. That he would grow in the areas that he is weak in. And there are many. Many. Headship, as we're going to see, does not mean that he does everything. Or is the best at everything. So pray for him. Second, encourage him as he tries and fails. And he will fail. There are going to be times when your husband makes a decision and does something and you know where it's going. And maybe you need to step in and maybe you don't. But encourage him in those times of failure. And there will be times of failure. Strengthen him, number three, by speaking positively about him to your family and your children. There are few things that can cut a person down as much as hearing somebody else speak ill of them in public. If you've been on the receiving end of that, you know. So strengthen him by speaking well of him. And fourth, honor him by submitting to the God-given position of leadership and care in your home. For a husband to lead his wife, as we're going to see next Sunday, is not only a privilege, it's a great responsibility. And one that every Christian man should take very seriously. It is prone to abuse, granted, but it doesn't have to be. And if we follow the way that God has designed husbands and wives to live together, we will not only honor him, but we will find it to be the sweetest of existences. I want to close with a word about priority. A word about priority. As a wife, wives, husbands, you can listen. Don't plug your ears. This is the same thing for you. It's just not your turn. Wives, your priority in your marriage is to pursue Jesus first he is the standard 
He is the ultimate husband of the bride. And so your responsibility is not to look around for other examples and and compare your marriage to that person's marriage or whatever you read in a magazine or some whatever. You need to pursue Christ. That is your primary thing. Your primary job in your marriage is to do that, to give yourself to knowing him. Know the life that he lived for you. Know the death that he died for you and the salvation that he purchased for you and how he cares for and and strengthens and encourages his body. Know him. You, You will not rightly love, honor, respect, or submit to your husband until you have done those things with Christ. You won't. And so your job, your privilege as a child of God is to pursue what the Bible calls Christ-likeness. Model your life after what Jesus has told us and then put those principles to work in your marriage. This is what God has called all of us to in some degree and specifically you as a godly wife. Next week, we're moving on. and The reason that this is kind of difficult, and I think I said this the first week, This whole section, 22 to 33, is very woven together. It doesn't necessarily flow like some of Paul's texts. We're going to go back here, and then we'll leave that, and then we're going to come back to it as we get on there. So, like I said, be patient with me as we work through all of these things and try to fit this all together. And by the time we get to the end of this section, my prayer and my hope for our church is that we understand what God would have for every husband as he follows Christ and for every wife as she follows Christ and that our church would be stronger because of what this passage tells us. So as we come to the table, let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have not only given us broad and general teaching, general instruction that we are left to just try to interpret and and figure out what it means on our own. Thank you that you have not done that, but you have given us passages like Ephesians 5. You've given us specific instruction in your word, and Lord, I pray that all of us, husbands, wives, people who are not yet married, people who are far away from it or maybe have been married, Lord, all of us, would submit ourselves to your word and your authority. And as we read what you expect from us and what you have called us to, Lord, give us the humility to live that way. That we would gladly bring ourselves under your care and protection and provision and authority. Help us in living this out, Lord. We ask for your help and give you thanks for your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.